service. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Eric Clapton's Derek and the Dominoes are insane. They involve murder, a deadly motorcycle accident, and devastating heartbreak and scandal. Eric Clapton was a one-of-a-kind guitarist seemingly hell-bent on self-destruction. He was heavily addicted to heroin, cocaine, and throughout his stint in Derek and the Dominoes, attempted to snort his way through unrequited love. And in doing so, came out on the other end with one of rock's most recognizable guitar riffs. And only one year after Clapton's Derek and the Dominoes got together, the group disbanded. But a year was all they needed to introduce the world to their white-hot strain of blues, which they nailed on their one and only studio album. Because when Eric Clapton, Jim Gordon, Dwayne Allman, Bobby Whitlock, and Carl Rattle were in the same room, they made great music. That music you heard at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Palisade Sachet MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to the long and winding road by the Beatles. And why would I play you that slice of last gasp of collective creativity cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on June 14, 1970. And that was the day that Derek and the Dominoes made their live debut and began to make their indelible contribution to rock and roll. On this episode, murder, motorcycles, unrequited love, and Eric Clapton's Derek and the Dominoes. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Christmas, 1929, Germantown, North Carolina. Charlie Lawson had a lot to be grateful for that holiday season. Aside from the death of his third son, William, back in 1920, the Lawsons lived a good life, all things considered. Their sharecropper neighbors considered them well-to-do. Two years prior, Charlie Lawson bought the family a tobacco farm out on Brook Cove Road, and they lived off of that farm, if not handsomely, then in relative comfort. Charlie Lawson and his wife, Fanny, and their seven children, Marie, 17, Arthur, 16, Carrie, 12, Mabel, 7, James, 4, Raymond, 2, and Mary Lou, just four months, were envied for their new clothing they wore when they made their trips into town. And there was a rumor going around that their father, Charlie, had even sprung for the cost of a family portrait, a blatant act of ostentation if there ever was one for a modest, God-fearing family of farmers back in 1929 Germantown. There was a depression on, after all. Hadn't the Lawsons heard? Charlie was hearing a lot. Whispers. 
then full-on voices. They told him about the rumors. They knew. Others knew. Peace was impossible with the voices. They weren't always there, but when they were, they weren't to be ignored. Listening to them was the only option. Ignoring them only made them louder. Charlie answered them in hushed tones under his breath. Fanny, his wife, at first thought Charlie was praying, talking to himself, sermonizing to himself to pass the time working the farm. But Charlie's muttering eventually made it into their home. Random, sharp shouts to himself out of nowhere in the company of the children. Once at the dinner table and then, incredibly, in public, on a Sunday, seated in their usual pew at church. No one noticed. Everyone thought it was just another touched soul convening with the Holy Ghost. But Fanny noticed. Something was not right with her husband. He doted on the children as of late. An act that would be welcomed by most wives and mothers if it wasn't so out of character for Charlie Lawson, the stern, hard-lined tobacco farmer who seldom expressed himself emotionally. Perhaps a smile for his wife on Sundays, sitting in their pew taking stock of their family, but hardly anything else. The small act of pride he allowed himself was just another reminder that he sinned like everybody else. Fanny relished those moments. She was downright petrified by what she was seeing as of late. Charlie laughing with the kids. He even took to telling jokes he'd heard retold in town by a vaudeville stagehand. The joke was clean, but Charlie was blue inside. Fanny could tell. Particularly telling was the extra attention and affection he was paying their 17-year-old daughter, Marie. Most nights, the day's hard farm work set Charlie asleep like a rock. He seldom stirred. From 8 p.m. to 4 a.m., Fanny Lawson's husband lay on his back in the small twin bed aside hers, stone cold asleep. But on that night before Christmas, what Fanny saw when she awoke in the middle of the night took her breath away with the fear of the devil himself. There, at the edge of his bed, sitting up in his pajamas, rubbing his calloused hands together, was her normally restful husband muttering to her horror. Yes, I will be good, I promise. I, I won't know more. I will be better. I, I will be good. But you have to stop. You have to stop, and so will I. Yes, yes, yeah, I promise. I promise. Fanny didn't know what scared her more. The subservient tone in her normally strong husband's voice or the fact that he was carrying on a full conversation with himself at the edge of his bed in the middle of the night. She stood up, walked over to his bed, placed her hand on his shoulder, and shocked him back into reality. He ignored her, stood, left the room, and didn't return for the rest of the night. The voices were in control now, and they would remain so well into the next day. Charlie Lawson enjoyed watching his family, especially on that Christmas morning, admiring them. Seeing them open their presents and play with their toys, it seemed to make all the hard work worth it. Later that afternoon, he sat out by the tobacco barn enjoying the clear winter's day and he watched his daughters Carrie and Mabel run across the field. And they were off to their aunt and uncle's house down the way. Charlie asked them to go and they were delighted to do so. From where he sat at that moment watching them, they weren't too far. He could see the different colors on the scarves and mittens Fanny had knitted them. He could see the smiles on their faces, the excitement and anticipation for more presents from their relatives and a Christmas feast before the day's end. Charlie saw all this as the voices in his head told him that the time was now. Charlie did what he was told. He lifted his 12-gauge shotgun, aimed, and put a bullet through his daughter Carrie, 
and then another through his daughter, Mabel. The snare drum blasted out like an old Remington. Drummer Jim Gordon sat at his kit, listening to the voice in his headphones. It was a voice he knew well, even if he didn't know its owner that well, personally. It was a famous voice, the voice of a Beatle, Beatle George Harrison. George was instructing him on the feel he was looking for on this new track they were recording. It was George Harrison's first foray into the studio as a solo artist post-Beatles. Work had commenced on what would become George's masterpiece, All Things Must Pass, and Jim Gordon found himself in the enviable position of drummer in George's new studio band. As Jim listened to George, George kept his finger pressed on the talkback button and continued conversing with another voice in the control room. Jim knew this voice, or it was the voice of God, the voice of Eric Clapton. In 1960s London, for young guitar enthusiasts, believing that Clapton is God was practically the 11th commandment. Eric Clapton had perpetually blown minds since he first hit the scene with the Yardbirds and then inexcusably quit the successful UK pop band in search of something more creatively fulfilling. He later took up with John Mayles' Bluesbreakers and proceeded to turn the London rock scene on its ear with his ingenious application of the stylings of Chicago bluesman Muddy Waters' harmonica player Little Walter Jacobs through the strings of his Gibson Les Paul electric guitar. The result was a big, fat tone that was also wildly expressive and heretofore unheard of in rock music. Eric Clapton added psychedelia to his sonic palette with his late 60s projects Cream and Blind Faith, blowing minds all the way up the charts in both groups, but like most great bluesmen, Eric just couldn't be satisfied. And by 1970, was casting about for a new group to lend his big, sticky blue tone to. He found that group in Delaney and Bonnie's band. The American singer-songwriter duo fronted a white hot rock and soul review that was lighting up stages across the US and Europe as an opener for Blind Faith by the turn of the decade. Eric Clapton glommed on, and to the delight of concertgoers, sat in with Delaney and Bonnie on some shows and elevated their sets to new heights. When the tour ended, Delaney and Bonnie's keyboardist Bobby Whitlock, bassist Carl Rattle, and drummer Jim Gordon, Americans All, retired to Eric's Surrey estate to get some downtime. Downtime for musicians of this caliber, however, meant constant jamming. Blues, blues, and more blues. Powered by cocaine, mandrax, and some sort of deep-seated heartache that was propelling Eric Clapton. When George Harrison called Eric Clapton to come down to Abbey Road to play on his new album, Eric showed up with a fully formed band spoiling for a session, and they did not disappoint. All Things Must Pass was the first ex-Beatle record to fully connect with audiences, allowing George to step out of the shadow of John Lennon and Paul McCartney in the process. All Things Must Pass sat atop the charts in the U.S. for seven weeks and in the U.K. for eight weeks, far outselling McCartney and John Lennon Plastic Ono Band, the first LP solo efforts by his former bandmates. Eric Clapton couldn't ignore the power of the band. They quickly played a show, a benefit they were asked to contribute to, and they needed a name. Someone suggested, maybe it was George and who the hell knows why, at literally the last minute, like moments before they were to go on stage, that they call themselves Derek and the Dominoes. Sounded good enough to them. So Eric Clapton's new band was born. And Jim Gordon was in a group, Derek and the Dominoes, and on stage. 
Not in the studio, listening to the voices in his headphones, but instead to that voice in his head. The one that told him he could do better. Jim, you can always do better. But it was hard for Jim Gordon to do better. He was literally the best. Try finding a rock drummer up until 1970 that played with more groups of consequence than Jim Gordon, and you'll be looking for a long time because there simply isn't one. Jim Gordon's list of credits is long and mighty impressive. By the time he had hooked up with Eric Clapton, he had already drummed for the Everly Brothers, the Righteous Brothers, the Birds on the Notorious Bird Brothers, Judy Collins, Gordon Lightfoot, Glenn Campbell on Wichita Linemen, the Beach Boys on Pet Sounds, and the list went on. In the future, he'd perform with Joe Cocker, Dave Mason, Traffic, Frank Zappa, Steely Dan, Alice Cooper, and on Carly Simon's You're So Vain, and on John Lennon's Imagine. To give you some idea of how prevalent Jim Gordon was as a working professional drummer, you know that amazing scene from Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas? The one where Ray Liotta's character, Henry Hill, is coked out of his mind and paranoid trying to outrun helicopters? The one with the incredible musical montage with back-to-back-to-back bangers heightening the intensity of what is probably the greatest film of all time? Songs like the All Things Must Pass track, What Is Life by George Harrison, and Harry Nilsson's Jump Into the Fire, which is used three times, climaxing in Jim Gordon's drum solo, just as Henry Hill is about to be arrested. Of the eight music cues in that montage, Jim Gordon plays on half of them. To give you some idea of how influential Jim Gordon was as a drummer, that's him playing on the incredible bongo band's Apache. You know the song. Even if you don't know the song right now, trust me, you know the song. Because more than 700 hip-hop songs have sampled it because of Jim Gordon's incredible drumming. Beginning in 1981 with the Sugar Hill Gang and their hit, also called Apache, Grandmaster Flash, LL Cool J, Nas, Aphex Twin, Missy Elliott, Kanye West, and Jay-Z, and Cool Herc himself, who called it, quote, the national anthem of hip-hop music. And oh yeah, drummer Jim Gordon co-wrote Eric Clapton's most recognizable hit, Derek and the Dominoes, Layla. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership in an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. 
Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland. All access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Christmas morning rabbit hunting was a tradition in Germantown, North Carolina, which is in part why Charles Lawson sent his oldest son, 16-year-old Arthur, into town to purchase shotgun shells. The other reason was that he didn't want Arthur around. The voices in his head warned him that Arthur, being big for 16 and bigger now than his father Charles, might stop him from doing what needed to be done. When the shots rang out from Charles's shotgun, the ones that he fired to kill his two daughters, Carrie and Maybelle, they were heard, but no one, not Charles's neighbors, not the rest of his family in his home, thought anything of the sound of gunfire. And this was, after all, Christmas morning. This was Germantown and this was Stokes County, which meant rabbits were being hunted and shot for sport with shotguns blasting from all over, from Winston-Salem to the county seat in Danbury. The sound of gunfire on that particular morning was not a surprise. In fact, it was to be expected. The sounds of screaming children, on the other hand, that wasn't to be expected, which is why Charles Lawson shot his daughters before bludgeoning them. Out in the field where their prone bodies lay partially submerged in deep, freshly fallen snow, Charles Lawson gazed down at his dead daughters. And for a moment, there was quiet. At long last, no voices, no gunshots. Just the wind quietly moving across the field, gently sifting the top level of snow. But then, burbling up from somewhere deep inside, rushing forward into his consciousness like a gathering storm, a tornado of whispers turned to a violent vortex of demands, and the voices all said one thing. Finish them. Charles pounced, straddling Carrie's body. He raised his fist and pummeled, bashing her young face until it was unrecognizable. But when he was done, he moved over to Maybell and did the same. And then he grabbed both girls by the collars, one in each arm, and dragged their bodies toward the tobacco barn. The voices were quieter, but no less insistent. Finish them. Charles moved on from the tobacco farm toward the house, shotgun in hand, trudging heavily through the snow. His wife Fanny was on their porch. She saw Charles walking toward her. Immediately she knew something was very wrong. His gait was all off. His head was hung low, chin down, pressed to his chest. His eyes pitched up to his brow, his shoulders hunched. He was lumbering, he was determined, he was all menace. The shotgun at his side was not a good sign. Fanny feared the worst. Charles saw the look, the recognition, the fucking judgment in her eyes, and the voices wouldn't allow it. Charles raised his shotgun, took quick aim, and blasted his wife away with one shot. Immediately, with the sound of the shotgun from such close range, Charles Lawson's daughter, Marie, from inside the house, let out a violent scream. Miami, 1970. Criteria Studios. Derek and the Dominoes were stuck. The blast of brief inspiration provided by the recent studio edition of Allman Brothers guitarist, the sublime bluesman Dwayne Allman, had momentarily come to a halt. The drugs had taken over. Cocaine, loads of it, and even more heroin. The band simply did not stop. Eric Clapton was lower than he'd ever been. He was completely and totally hung up on the wife of his best friend, George Harrison. And Patty Boyd Harrison wasn't having it. The heartache was all consuming for Eric. He attempted to outrun it through his playing. 
But when the inspiration dried up or plain old fatigue set in, the only plan B was drugs. And in Miami, in 1970, the kind of drugs, adult drugs, that Eric Clapton needed were plentiful. When he didn't have a guitar in hand, he chopped up lines and leaned into the switchblade shoved under his nose, snorting cocaine and heroin. And then, of course, he and the rest of his band would nod out. Music making would stop. And the promised Eric and the Dominoes displayed in the studio with George Harrison had become a mess of drug-induced false starts brought to life momentarily by the outside influence of Dwayne Allman, who at the moment was losing to his own demons like the rest of the band. And to this point, they'd actually made decent progress on a blistering new track. Of course, another send-up of unrequited love to Patty Harrison. This one, based on a book by the Persian poet Nizami called The Story of Layla and Majna. It is, of course, a tragic love story where the protagonist, Majnum, is destined to a loveless life of solitude after having been spurned by the love of his life, Layla. Needless to say, Eric Clapton could relate. And Dwayne Allman could relate to Eric Clapton. As guitar players, they were instant soulmates. Eric was introduced to Dwayne by producer Tom Dowd in Miami at an Allman Brothers concert. Dwayne was soon after hurried to Criteria Studios to jam. The connection between the two guitarists was instant, inspiring, and indelible. Dwayne effortlessly drove Eric's already stellar playing to new heights and set Eric off deeper into the depths of his depression to mind for lyrics that were raw and undeniably real. The story of Layla and Majnum paired with Dwayne Allman's unforgettable seven-note riff and stellar bottleneck slide playing became Eric Clapton's most memorable pop hit, Layla. Half of it, anyway. In a separate room, away from his bandmates, who were at the moment funked out on the floor, nodded off after running into a wall with Layla, unable to finish the song, to bring it home, to make it anything more than a three-minute verse-chorus-verse romp with soaring slide guitar, Derek and the Domino's drummer, Jim Gordon, was sitting at a piano. The riff he was playing was a melody he and his ex-girlfriend, Rita Coolidge, used to mess with up in the John Garfield guesthouse they stayed at in Hollywood. It was moody, dramatic. Rita used to hum it and then play it on the upright in the guest house. It was an earworm of the highest magnitude in the best possible way. Jim taught himself the chords on the piano and added to the progression and melody and was now secretly off recording it in the studio's B room for what he hoped would be his solo record, while the rest of his drugged out bandmates slept off their dope eyes. And those piano notes rang out. Eric Clapton heard them. He discovered his drummer at the piano. What, he wanted to know, was this. Jim Gordon told him it was his. It was going on his record. This riff, this melody, this piece was too good for any sideman hustle. Eric Clapton wanted the piano piece. He needed it. He made Jim play it for Dwayne Allman. And Dwayne nodded in agreement with Eric and called in producer Tom Dowd, whose jaw hit the floor. And the rest of the band agreed. They needed this piece. And Jim didn't want to give it up. The band pleaded. It was the missing piece, the piece of music that would complete Layla, the piece of music that would make the song better. You can do better, Jim. That's what the voices always said. And they were right. He knew it. So he gave the piece up. Derek and the Dominoes quickly recorded Jim Gordon's and his ex-girlfriend's majestic melody on piano as the coda to Layla. Jim plinked out the notes. Keyboardist Bobby Whitlock recorded his own track to steady the ship. Eric Clapton and Dwayne Allman went to work applying their dual guitar genius over the heavy emotional melody. 
but what they came up with is as close to symphonic as rock instrumentation can get. The finished piece directly resembles the heartbreaking emotion at the core of Eric Clapton's lyrics. The song Layla, now with Jim Gordon's piano contribution, is, in a word, a masterpiece. Jim Gordon allowed himself a moment of satisfaction upon listening to the playback of Layla. Despite all this success to that point, he couldn't actually believe where he was at, what he was accomplishing. And this was different. This wasn't just drumming, this was composing, conducting a symphony with God himself, Eric Clapton, and his disciple, Dwayne Allman. But deep down, Jim Gordon heard the whispers. He knew he wasn't done, and they wouldn't let him finish. There was more for him to do, and the voices kept telling him, you can do better. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The scream from Marie, Charles Lawson's daughter, cut through the tiny farmhouse. Her two younger brothers, James and Raymond, darted off to hide. Within seconds, their deranged father burst through the front door. Marie took one look at him and knew this was it. She was all too familiar with what her father, Charles Lawson, was capable of. Charles stood in the front of the doorway, frozen, his eyes fixed on his oldest, prettiest daughter. He clenched his lips, focused his eyes, waited for her to say something, waited for further instruction. Marie accepted what was about to happen. She put one hand on the bottom of her belly, breathed a sigh of relief, and there would be no more pain, no more shame. Loosened suddenly from these constantly oppressive twin emotions, Marie's body slackened as she began to walk, to almost saunter slowly toward her father, who stood stone still, like a rabbit out in the field caught in the sights of its hunter, frozen briefly before making its next move. Marie's approach taunted Charles, like most everything his attractive 17-year-old daughter did. And then, the voices did what they always did. They rose up quick from within their host and gave Charles that familiar party line. Do it. Charles quickly raised his shotgun and fired a round off into Marie at close range. After the shot echoed out, Charles heard the whimpering. He quickly located his two hiding sons, James and Raymond, and pumped one bullet into each of them. Then he heard the crying. Mary Lou, his lone surviving daughter, just four months old. The voices in his head had gathered again, and they were screaming and following the lead of the loudest voice among them. The voice of a stern, domineering, judgmental woman. No loose ends. Finish the job. Be better. Charles Lawson murdered his baby girl on Christmas morning with his bare hands. Be better. Be better. Be better. It was all Charles Lawson heard. Five decades later, it was all Jim Gordon heard too. The voice of Jim's mother was in his head. His mother, who by all accounts was a loving mother, a maternity ward nurse who along with his father, an accountant, raised Jim in Sherman Oaks, California and what was an upper-middle-class upbringing. Her son, Jim Gordon, drummer for Eric Clapton's early 70s disappearing act, Eric and the Dominoes, perhaps the greatest living professional drummer on the planet at the time, was caught in the grip of drug and alcohol abuse and undiagnosed schizophrenia and fast spinning out of control. 
Just like the wheels on Dwayne Allman's 1970 Harley-Davidson Sportster, spinning out of control. Down Macon, Georgia's Hillcrest Avenue, Dwayne's head was spinning too. Freedom was in the Southern boy's DNA, which meant he was not averse to rolling his powerful Harley down the highway exactly as he wanted, at whatever speed he wanted. Cruising down the road, his long hair trailing behind him, off into a blessed musical future, one that Dwayne Allman's youth and immense talent all but guaranteed. Eric Clapton's one-time domino, Jim Gordon's one-time bandmate had little to worry about. And then, the flatbed semi-tractor trailer up ahead stopped suddenly as it took a wide turn. Dwayne on his Sportster, moving at top speed, swerved to avoid hitting the truck, but his reaction came too late. He hit the semi and was thrown from his bike, and the momentum rocketed his body down the paved highway and the bike rocketed into the air upon impact with the truck. And when it came down, it came down hard on top of Dwayne. The force and momentum of the bike dragged Dwayne underneath it on the pavement for a full 50 feet before coming to a stop. Dwayne Allman died later that evening at Middle Georgia Hospital of massive internal damage to his heart, liver, and other organs from a collapsed chest. Upon hearing the news, Jim Gordon was sunk. Derek and the Dominoes had broken up earlier that year in 1971, but who was to say it was final? Jim half expected a reunion, but with Dwayne Allman, their part-time lightning rod of True Blue's inspiration now gone, and Eric Clapton's drug, alcohol, and heartbreak freefall now speeded by grief over Dwayne's loss, any hopes of a reunion quickly faded. Jim Gordon, drummer for Derek and the Dominoes, co-writer of God's Coda, Eric Clapton's Layla, was sunk. He quickly spiraled into his own drug and alcohol funk. He tried playing through it on sessions with Jackson Brown, but by the time Bob Dylan came calling, Jim was in too rough a shape and had to pass. And throughout the 70s, Jim's behavior grew increasingly erratic, and for the first time in his professional life, the steadiness of his gigs started to slip. But the voices never dropped the beat. You can do better. The voices were steady. The voices got loud. The drugs and alcohol helped drown them out. Jim graduated from snorting heroin to shooting heroin. It was self-medication for the undiagnosed schizophrenic because the voices were becoming unbearable. One in particular, with every day grew louder, more persistent, more insistent. It was a familiar voice, the voice of his mother, imploring him to always be better. But how could he? He tried that, he'd done that. There was no one better. By any quantifiable standard, Jim Gordon was the best at his chosen profession, rock drummer. But his mother's voice in his head gave him no quarter, no credit, no relief, day and night. Be better, be better, be better, be better. Something, someone had to make the voice stop. By the time Stokes County authorities had found the bodies, Charles Lawson was long gone. But not before he had arranged the bodies of the Lawson children and their mother neatly within the blood-soaked walls of the family home. Charles placed them gently on the floor, 
taking care to cross their arms and prop their heads up for eternal comfort by placing large rocks from his tobacco barn under their heads. Once the coda to the Christmas massacre was near complete, Charles Lawson set out to the woods. He stopped at a nearby creek to wash the blood from his hands. Clean hands were better than bloody hands, and there was always room to be better. And the source of his shame was now gone. His 17-year-old daughter would taunt him no more. His other children would whisper about him no more. His judgmental wife would judge him no more. And the voices were at long last quiet. Charles Lawson paced around the poplar tree, satisfied now that he was free of the voices. And he sat down on the wooded ground and propped himself up against the poplar's trunk. He turned his shotgun toward his face, reached down and pulled the trigger. 53 years later, Jim Gordon, like Charles Lawson, had reached the end of his rope. Unlike Charles Lawson, Jim Gordon had no family. He had driven away two wives and a daughter with his career and then his erratic behavior. He wasn't close with his older sibling and his father had died in 1973. Throughout his life, music, not family, centered him. The sessions, the tours, and even his brief stint in a band in Eric Clapton's Derek and the Dominoes but now, all of that was gone. Jim's state of mind was too shot to perform consistently, to work with others, and his addiction to alcohol and drugs too consuming. And by the time 1983 rolled around, all Jim Gordon had was his 72-year-old mother. Jim's mother worried about her son and cared for him, helping him kick drugs and alcohol at various times. But Jim would always find his way back to his addictions. And then the voices would get real loud, admonishing him for his vices, guilting him for squandering his talent, taunting him for his inability to live a normal life, pushing him always to do the impossible, to do what he'd been trying to do his whole life, to do what he knew he could not do, be better. Destined to fail, the shame of it was unbearable. The voices, all of them, a chorus of disapproval inside of his head, were conducted by the voice of his mother, the woman who in reality took care of him, who worried about him, who helped him get on the wagon when he tried to stop the drinking and drugs, who visited him those times when he checked himself into the hospital for when the voices were too much. His mother was the only one left in the world who actually cared about Jim Gordon. But that was reality. In his head, Jim Gordon knew there was no reality where he could actually be better, so his mother needed to be silenced. She wouldn't stop. She wouldn't shut the fuck up. She wanted to control him. She wanted to own him. She wanted him to be something he wasn't. Didn't she know he was a rock and roller, an outlaw, a free spirit? There was no controlling him. There was no owning him. There was no making him be better. He was the best. He was Jim Gordon, and he had finally snapped. On June 1st, 1983, Jim Gordon's mother answered her telephone. On the other end was her son. He told her, you're bugging me again. I'm going to kill you. Despite the warning, when Jim showed up at her apartment, his 72-year-old mother opened the door to let him in, most likely to calm him down, to do what mothers do for their children, to take care of him. But there was no taking care of Jim Gordon. Like Charles Lawson, the voices were in control. The voices in Charles's head had told him to kill, but Jim was at war with the voices in his head. When his mother opened her apartment door, her son brought a hammer down onto her head and bashed her skull open. 
He then grabbed a butcher's knife and savagely stabbed her, violently ending her life. The neighbors could hear her screaming, and the voices in Jim Gordon's head had gone silent, for a moment anyway, but they'd be back. Jim Gordon, murderer, undiagnosed schizophrenic, one of the best drummers of all time, drummer for Eric Clapton's Derek and the Dominoes, now spends his days rehearsing with the inmate band in California's state prison medical facility because one can always be better. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month, weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rockerola.